Hello, welcome to another edition of Take 15 at CFA Institute. My name is Stephen Horn, Head of Professional Education Content at CFA Institute, and I'm joined here by my colleague, Usman Hyatt, Director of Islamic Finance and Environmental, Social and Governance. Our agenda today is to cover a brief overview of Islamic finance as an entree to some of the deeper coverage we have at CFA Institute in this emerging subject matter. Usman, how would you define Islamic finance? It's a growing area that many of us have heard about, but we don't necessarily know exactly what it means. Uh, Islamic finance is fairly simple to define. You can define it as finance that complies with Sharia or the divine law of Muslims. And why is that important to investors? It is very important for Muslims investors because there is clear and specific directions within Sharia regarding financial matters. So Muslims would like to abide by these directions in their financial life. And so how did these uh, principles evolve? Have they evolved recently um, over time as the financial system has evolved? Uh, the principles have been there since you know the beginning of Islam. So the principles have been there for more than 1,400 years. But the Islamic finance industry is fairly young, and you know it is not more than 50 years old. So is this then a set of principles that's exclusive to Muslims? Uh, certainly not. In fact, Islamic finance as a whole is quite inclusive for everyone. So the principles themselves are coming from Islam. But the industry is inclusive to everyone. So whether you're an investor or a shareholder or a professional, you know, you can work in this area. So non-Muslims then can seek career opportunities at uh, an Islamic bank or a Shakuk fund. Is that correct? Absolutely. In fact, they're already doing it. Quite a few funds are in uh, the Islamic funds are not being managed by Muslims necessarily. And you see, you know, chief executives of Islamic financial institutions who are not necessarily Muslims as well. And same is the case for the shareholders or the investors at large. Interesting. Now, you had referenced uh, principles or concepts that are central to Islamic finance. Can you give a brief description of what those principles are? Yeah, the three most important principles are the one concerning riba, gharar, and mesa. So riba is the most generally understood what it means or what it includes is the prohibition on interest on monetary loans. Gharar can be defined as preventable ambiguity in contract essentials. For instance, if a contract, a sale contract without a price being specified, you know, that would fall under gharar. And mesa can be defined as games of chance, speculation, and the extreme form of which is gambling. So it sounds like RIBA being a prohibition against interest makes it uh, prohibitive for Muslims to either borrow or lend money. Is that correct? Yeah, Muslims are not supposed to lend money on interest. And so uh, credit is a fundamental element of the f uh, global financial system. How is it then that an Islamic bank or Muslims might transact with each other if it's not in the context of debt? Through trading, instead of lending or borrowing money on interest, you trade goods and services. For instance, instead of lending you money to buy something, an Islamic financial institution may actually buy, a, some, buy something from a supplier and sell it to you with a markup. So it sounds like uh, Muslims, rather than being debt holders, uh, have more of an equity stake um, in the transactions in which they participate. Yes, and other than sales transactions, you know, you'll have both parties, one would be a seller, other would be a buyer. But otherwise, yes, we were more likely to see or when we should see participation as equity holders 
because the idea is to share profits and losses you know in an, in the enterprise rather than lend money on interest which is which has to be paid regardless of the outcome of the enterprise interesting you you mentioned a couple of other concepts that perhaps are are less prominent in people's mind uh about islamic finance and one of those was preventable ambiguity can you describe a little bit more about what that means and uh how it might relate to say derivatives contracts which are uh, very important to the financial system these days yeah this concept of ghadar has been defined in more than one ways i think a simple way of to look at it is as preventable amb- ambiguity in contract essentials and the example which i gave earlier is that a contract let's say a sale contract has to have the price of a good or service being sold so if i sell something to you and we haven't really agreed on price then that would the contract would be null and void under sharia because there is preventable ambiguity or gharar and it does extend to derivatives and the the mainstream view on derivatives is that they are prohibited because they do not meet the condition of gharar as well as some other conditions interesting so um take for example a um financial instrument like an overnight repurchase agreement it um it's not a loan per se because you are actually buying and reselling an asset at different points in time um how would that be viewed under sharia law it is more likely to be viewed as a interest based transaction and it is important to keep in mind that in islamic finance all transactions need to have a real underlying asset a real tangible underlying asset so you know if you are doing a repo based on a financial asset it may not be consistent with sharia for more than one reason so you referenced several principles of islamic finance um and we hear about the quran i i presume that that's a primary source uh for some of these uh is that the exclusive source that creates these principles and concepts uh quran is the primary source but it's not the exclusive source another primary source is sunnah of prophet muhammad so what it means is the sayings of prophet muhammad the acts of prophet muhammad and the acts that he approved of tacitly which were done by others in his presence so these sources are uh special to muslim and islam um are these ideas and concepts unique to islam as well not really in fact it's quite important to understand that some of these concepts and ideas have been held by others for instance take the prohibition on usury now usury was prohibited in christianity and judaism and hinduism as well so these concepts and ideas are not necessarily exclusive to islam in fact they're not even exclusive to religions as well and you will find such ideas being expressed by other people who are not associated with any faith So uh, there's a lot of faith-based investing initiatives that would uh, prohibit investing in certain types of businesses. Um does Islamic finance share any of those principles? Absolutely. In fact, there are a number of businesses which have been prohibited in Sharia, so an Islamic financial institution would not participate in these businesses. Similarly, a Muslim investor would not invest in these businesses. a good example would be establishment of a casino or a brewery so since alcohol is forbidden and gambling is forbidden so we would not see participation of muslim investors and muslim islamic financial institutions in these in such businesses i presume that uh, gambling would be prohibited because of the prohibition against excessive uh, speculation uh the prohibition against alcohol uh consumption and investing in those businesses what kind of principle does that draw on 
Uh, there is a prohibition coming straight from the Quran on that, which is a prohibition on khamar, and then which is grapevine. And then scholars have reason that the underlying rationale behind the prohibition on khamar is intoxication. So it has been systematically generalized based on intoxication to other alcoholic drinks. So if an investor wanted to incorporate Islamic principles into their investment program, how would they go about doing it? Uh, are there particular structures out there that make it possible for them to do it? Yes, and one example of such a structure would be an Islamic fund. So in, what an Islamic fund would do, it would screen out all the businesses which are considered sinful by Islam. And then it, it would also invest in companies which have much lower levels of debt and interest income compared to other companies. So you mentioned a couple of uh, negative screens as we would understand them in the context of socially responsible investing. Are there any uh, positive screens that would be important to Muslims, that is, uh, kinds of activities that would be particularly important to support or uh, finance? At the moment we are not seeing any, we haven't seen any systematic use of positive screens by Islamic funds. But, you know, in, as things are evolving, we would expect such screens to evolve in the future. Uh, do we have a sense of how large the market is? On the whole, the assets under management in Islamic finance, at the moment, most estimates range up to $1 trillion. And there's said to be more than 325 Islamic funds out there. Is uh, this growing or is it shrinking over time? The market clearly is growing. In fact, it is growth that is bringing most of the attention to Islamic finance and the growth rates at the moment are projected between 15% to all the way to 30%. So what are some of the criticisms that have been levied against Islamic finance as um, a means of investing? Islamic finance has more than its fair share of critics and criticism and the core criticism is that it, the practitioners are putting the form above the substance in structuring products and in offering their services. And uh, what, what is the defense against that kind of criticism? Well, one of the common defense against this criticism of form over substance is that the practitioners are of the view that it is a fairly young industry, you know, less than 50 years old, and it needs to be given more time to evolve and come up with structures that are more consistent with the spirit of Islam. So is there uh, basically uniform opinion about what approved structures are and what uh, the approved applications of these principles are in the industry? The way the Sharia supervision process works is that companies have their boards of scholars called Sharia supervisory boards. They may have three to five scholars and these boards give the opinions on whether or not a product or service offered by an institution is consistent with Sharia. So these opinions can differ across companies and there are differences across countries as well. I've heard about some differences and controversies surrounding Sakuks recently and whether or not they've been structured properly to adhere to Sharia principles. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that controversy and uh, what you see as the potential uh, likely result? Yeah, a Sakuk market has suffered because of the controversy that you're referring to and the idea really was that some scholars were of the view that the structures that were being used to make these sakooks were not entirely consistent with Sharia. And they came up with certain objections against certain structures and there was a lot of discussion on them. And recently the accounting and auditing organization for Islamic financial institutions, it has issued new standards to deal with, the, with these concerns. You mentioned standards. 
CFA Institute has its code of ethics and its standards of practice, which has been the cornerstone of its uh, standards of professional excellence since its inception. Would there be any principles of Islamic finance or applications of those principles that might be in conflict with those codes and standards? I would consider this to be most unlikely, and the reason is that Islam has very high standards of ethics for individuals. So it is more likely to be the case that the standards in Islam are probably tougher than the standards being used by the CFA Institute. Um, bringing this down perhaps to an individual level uh, in personal finance, it sounds like uh, there's some restrictions perhaps on an individual's ability to borrow money in order to say purchase a home. Um, how would an Islamic sensitive uh, investor or say home purchaser um, be able to incorporate these principles in the context of home ownership? Yeah, instead of using a conventional mortgage, what a Muslim investor could do is, you know, avail himself of one of these opportunities for Islamic home financing. So what would essentially happen is that instead of the bank giving you a loan to borrow a house, the bank will buy a house and then sell it to the investor for a markup. So it sounds like an Islamic bank is going to be fundamentally different from a conventional commercial bank. Can you outline a little bit about what those differences might be? Yeah, I think the fundamental difference is between the client and the bank relationship. In a conventional uh, bank, the deposit of the client is secured and it, is more, it takes more of the shape of a loan given to the bank. Whereas Islamic institutions also offer profit and loss sharing accounts. So the bank becomes more of a fund manager for these investors rather than simply a borrower of deposits. Well, the field is obviously growing um, and it's obviously fascinating. Um, it also seems to be a moving target. So what would your outlook for the industry be? Where do you see it going? I think one should look at both the positives and negatives when, once you talk about the outlook. The, of course, the big positive is the growth that is taking place in the industry and now it seems to be attracting higher and higher caliber of individuals. But on the negative side, if you look at the arguments that it seems that the critics are perhaps doing a better job over there and there hasn't been as much of an evolution as was expected from the Islamic financial institutions. But the important thing to keep in mind is perhaps that the long-term future and when I say long term, I actually mean very long term. The long term future of the industry is secured in a way because some of these financial principles are coming straight from the scriptures in Islam. So there would always be Muslims who would want to live their financial life in accordance with the principles of Islam. Usman, thank you very much for sharing your great insights with us in this growing field uh, of Islamic finance. It's obviously very important to the industry and is uh, probably positioned to become more important. And thank you for watching this episode of Take 15. To view more episodes, please visit our website at cfawebcasts.org. Copyright 2008, CFA Institute. No part may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, electronic, mechanical, recording, or otherwise, without the express prior written permission of CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.